0: If you are who they say you are, then I need you to say, I need you to do what they say you do. Like, I need, I need whatever, whatever that is.
1: How do you forgive when the wound is still open? How do you leave a legacy of redemption instead of dysfunction? How do you trust God when your deepest fears are realized? Join me, Sarah May, along with some wise mentors along the way, as we explore these and other messy heart topics and the strategies we can use to seek healing in the pain and restoration in the ruins. Welcome to the Complicated Heart Podcast. Today on the show, I'm talking with Serena Woods, author of the book, Grace is for Sinners. Serena and I met years ago when I was running the Relevant, then a Loom conference. I had found her book and had asked her to speak. Recently, I picked up her book and read it again, and I knew I needed to have her on the show. The problem was that there were so many questions I wanted to ask her, and there were different aspects of her story I wanted to highlight. It couldn't be done in one podcast, so I asked Serena if she'd be willing to do a three-part series, and she graciously said yes. Yes. If you've been listening, then you know I've been doing a series on marriage and the complicated nature of it when abuse and infidelity become tangled up in the vows of commitment. You also know that I'm very interested in tracing people's lives to understand their stories better. You know, what's behind a life? How do our childhoods and our wounds and the big and the little intricacies of life affect us? Serena's story takes us through three acts, if you will. Act one. Part one is today, and I'm talking with Serena about her bad beginning, as she calls it in her book. This episode is not appropriate for children. I also want to give you a heads up that the content in this episode deals with childhood sexual and physical abuse, as well as rape. In the show notes, I tell you exactly where those hard parts are, so if you'd like, you can skip over them and still be able to hear the rest of the podcast. With all that said, Serena. Welcome to the show.
0: Sarah, thank you so much for having me on here.
1: I'm so grateful you said yes. Okay, in your book, Graces for Sinners, you open with what you call a bad beginning. Will you start your story there and tell us a little bit about your bad beginning? Okay, so my
0: bad beginning story starts a little bit before I was born. Um, My mom was... Uh, she had a terrible childhood. She was um, raped by family members. Um, and she ended up escaping that when she was 13. And back then, back in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, um, they didn't have a lot of help for for kids. She was about five when that started happening. And um, she did, they didn't have a lot of help for kids back then. So she was really uh She just slipped through the cracks, and around uh the time she was thirteen, she ended up running away from home and just starting her own life uh knowing that it would just be better than what she was in and so she got pregnant when she was fifteen and had me she had me in september right? and she would have turned sixteen in november so um a runaway homeless fifteen <laughs> year old having a baby that's a pretty rough beginning for the baby so I think that her the only thing that she knew was um, to use her body to uh, to provide what she needed. She didn't have skills education anything like that so she um, was a prostitute of sorts. It's not like she got paid for it, but she had a place to sleep or we had a place to sleep um, and food and that sort of thing if she if she used her, herself that way. And so that put me in a lot of really bad situations. And um, we just, she ended up uh, with truckers a lot. So we'd be on the road. Um, we'd be walking and hitchhiking. And our life was just on the streets, all the time on the streets. Um, every once in a while, if she got beat up that enough, we'd end up in a shelter. But she always, um, you know, that never led to anything. There was nobody that could reach her to help her. Um, and so, uh, I ended up getting taken away from her, uh, when I was little, I think, um, I wasn't supervised and, uh, I ended up wandering, um, into an elementary school. Uh, I, I would jump on church buses, um, just anything that would come through that the rest of the kids would do, I would try to do with them. And, um, I would, (laughs) so I, other adults ended up seeing me and, um, intervening at different points. And I, uh, ended up in foster care. And from what I understand, even as an adult, um, the foster care system is pretty, there are way more kids than there are homes. And so, um, there are a lot of temporary homes or, uh, like shelters. I ended up living in a Salvation Army shelter. Um, it was mo- mostly like for older kids. And so I was kind of isolated, um, in there. They wouldn't let me sleep in the same, um, after, after the first few nights, they wouldn't let me sleep in the same room as the older kids. Cause they were always talking about way, you know, older kids stuff, older hurt kids stuff. And so they would put me in a room all by myself. And, um, so I was just always really isolated, um, from just normal society. I mean, and then even abnormal normal. One time, um, I don't know how old I was. Let's say all of my memories seem to be five or six, but you never really know. Um, I jumped on a church van that would come through our trailer park. We lived in the, in the worst trailer in the trailer park. It didn't have, uh, like we never used the bathroom for some reason. I don't understand it. The tub was full of stagnant water and we couldn't use the toilet. So I never bathed. I never got a bath and I would go to the bathroom outside. And it seemed normal to me. So I spent a lot of time outside unsupervised and just, I don't know, in my own world. And um, a church fan, would come through the the trailer park, and kids would get on there and so one day I got on there, and it was awesome like we would go I went to this church um i don 't remember much about it. I remember blue carpet, I remember a really nice lady leading like she 's probably like you know the the teacher of my class and um, I remember sitting on the floor with other kids, and I learned a song, and this song that uh that we would sing. I just like we would sing about Jesus and I I had no concept whatsoever of anything like I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know anything. I do know that this place has nice people and snacks and that's about it. And um, we were singing this song and I I had this feeling um, that the only way I could describe it is that I felt like I was sitting on Jesus's lap. Like we're singing to Jesus. We're talking. It was Jesus loves me. So we're singing, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And I'm singing, I learned it, I'm singing it with all these kids, and I felt like I was sitting on his lap. It was like the warmest feeling. As an adult now, um, with a relationship with God, I now know that I probably was <laughs> sitting on his lap. Uh, but at the time, it was just, I just liked the way it felt. And so every once in a while, I would sing that. Sing that song to myself, like whenever I needed to sort of console myself or anything, you know, on those nights whenever it's just really, really dark. And then, you know, move, move forward in time. I get taken away from her and I ended up in a Salvation Army shelter. Um, I don't know exactly how old I was. Oh, well, I know I was in kindergarten. I know that whenever I went to the closet to look for clothes to wear, I would have to look for the number four. So I was a T, and at nighttime, I slept on a cot in a room all by myself and I would just lay there and cry. And one, um, I remember one night a woman came in and, uh, she pulled up a chair next to my bed and just put her hand on my back and would just rub my back until I fell asleep. And, um, I never saw this lady uh, during the day, and I never saw her at night. I never saw her until at night when i 'm laying in there by myself, she would come in not say a word and just rub my back i don't know i don't know i don't like major on this too much, but if angels exist, I think she was one. I mean, I know they exist they're in the Bible, but I know people can make a religion out of that i'm not about that, but I do think. There is something to that.
1: I love that. And it probably was an angel comforting you, just God letting you know that he sits with us in the dark. It's just, that's really beautiful. In your book, you detail, not graphically, but the abuse that you dealt with. And I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about the abuse and how your little girl mind interpreted what was happening to you?
0: So I don't know exactly how to answer that because it's more like a, uh, a disconnect. It was confusing at first. My mother's boyfriend uh, didn't have a working car. He needed to um, go into town and try to look for a job. And so he'd go up to the highway and just um, hitchhike. But he knew that nobody would pick up a man. But he also knew that if the man had a little girl, then somebody would pick him up. So he would take me kind of as his ticket. He called me his ticket and he'd make me stick up my thumb. Well, this man with a really nice car picked us up and the inside of his car. <laughs> I just remember, um, it just smelled like coffee breath. You know, um, I was and this man attached himself to our family. I think that I think that my mom's boyfriend dangled me like bait and a pedophile came up and and snatched it. So he attached himself to our family for a short amount of time and he, uh, he would bring us food and, um, but I could feel his attention on me and I didn't like it. So I would try to always just be gone whenever he was around even as a kid, a kid can feel unwanted attention and i could feel his attention and i didn't like it and i'm an introvert an extreme introvert i don't like attention so add that to it <laughs> i'm just very perceptive i i i've always been very good at reading people i didn't like this guy but he didn't come all the time so it wasn't like a daily thing it, it was a It was for a while, but, um, I remember we, I, I had to share a room with uh, my little sister and my little brother and they were young enough to still wet the bed. And so the sheets were always wet. Um, I would try to find, uh, blankets or sheets that, um, that didn't have as much pee on them, like you know, I would smell them, and if it, I could, you could smell pee on everything. But some of them weren't as wet, and so I would grab one and make it myself a bed on the floor because I didn't like being peed on all, all the time. And um, so I made myself a bed on the floor. Well, this guy started coming in to like tuck us in. I could hear him. I could hear change rattling over by the bed, and I, it's like he was giving them coins. And he gave me a dollar, and then he would put his hands he had put his hand in my underwear and I had never, I was just so confused. I didn't, you know, it just happens so fast. It's just like, I don't know. It's just very confusing as a child for somebody to, to touch you in a way that nobody, you just don't, I don't know. A child isn't even aware of that, you know? Uh, and then um, I had told my mom that he, that he touched me down there. And she said, well, tell me if it happens again. And keep in mind, you know, if I'm six, how old is she? She was 15. I don't know, Matt, 21. Um, At the time, um, I just felt let down by her. Like I, and I was afraid to tell her boyfriend because I was afraid that somebody would get beat up. So I, I reached out. It didn't land anywhere. So The next time he came over, he came back in there. So what I did is I'm sitting on the floor and I just brought my knees up to my chest and I wrapped my arms around my legs. I just made myself like unreachable and it didn't work. It didn't work. Um, And I don't know how he ended up not being in our lives anymore, but um, that's the extent of that. One more thing that ended up sticking with me probably longer than that I remember the phone ringing one day and my mom answered it. And I remember her saying, No, she's too young. And then that was, and then when she got off the phone, I asked her what that was. And he had offered her to buy me. And she said, No, she's too young. And the way that stuck with me um, throughout is I was afraid of growing up. And so different milestones, you know, different milestones whenever you start to grow up, body changes and all of that were just, they were, I just got more and more private.
1: Yeah. And that makes perfect sense why you would get more private and why you would fear growing up and what that would mean for you. You also talk about in the book how your stepdad was really cruel and for lack of a better word he really did torture you
0: he was always just really just mean his sense of humor he thought it was funny to hurt people and he would drink a lot and uh, so he I remember one time he he asked me if I wanted to play a game. And I mean, if he's going to be nice to me, yeah, I'll def- I definitely want to play a game. And he said, okay, hold out your hand. He's laying out on the couch. He's got beer cans around him. He's smoking a cigarette. He's just, he's got like a playful sort of vibe about him. And I, I held out my hand and uh, he goes, okay, you can't move. And I'm like determined, I'm not going to move. He puts his cigarette out on my forearm. I have a scar. And uh, I, And my mom told me to go outside and play, you know, um, to get me away from him. And I went out, I was riding my big wheel and you know how you're like sitting, seated in a big wheel and your arms are there and your legs are like coming up, your knees are like coming up and hitting your arms. My knee came up and hit my arm and it rubbed the skin off. And that's how I knew that I was hurt. Like it, it hurt when it happened, but I, my skin was peeling off. And so anyway, I went back inside and I can't I I knew I knew as a kid, like you can't make too much of a fuss because then they'll start arguing and then and then it's just over. Like if I stay quiet, if I just take it, then she won't like get in trouble sticking up for me and then maybe he'll like pass out or you know, something maybe 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 the day can be redeemed or whatever. You know, I remember him I was still young enough to announce like, I have to go to the bathroom, but you know, I'm able to go to the bathroom, but you know, there's that transition point with your kids. Cause you know, and so I'm like, I have to go to the bathroom. He's like, no, you have to sit there. And like, I, so he made me sit there, uh, until like on a chair, um, until I was uh, crying, I was about to pee my pants. And he was like, if you pee your pants, you know, I I knew I'd be in huge trouble. And um, finally she said, please just let her go to the bathroom. And so he said, fine, go. And I start heading up the stairs and I start feeling these stings in the back of my leg. Um, And I turn around and he is poking a needle into the back of my legs as I'm crawling up the stairs, just over and over, and he's laughing. And my mom is at the bottom of the stairs saying, stop, stop. And I peed my pants on the stairs. And I made it up there. And he's like, gosh, I'm just playing. I'm not hurting her. And uh, he he's throwing stuff in there because he doesn't like being in trouble by her. And she's upstairs with me. And we peel my jeans off of me that I just peed all over. And just little trickles of blood mixed with pee down the back of my legs. And yeah, it, torture. Torture is a, is, a, is a good word to use for that. He used to hold me down and blow in my face so I couldn't breathe. Just stuff like that.
1: Hmm. You were in 11 foster homes in three years, and then you got adopted at age 10. Tell us about that.
0: From the time I was taken away from my mom until I got adopted, I just waited for her. Like, I was just waiting for her. And then I didn't know that she was putting me up for adoption. So that was a—that was— Uh, that was really hard um, because I felt lost, like lost. And uh, so this family, this family adopted us, you know, like, and you don't get to pick a last name. You don't get to pick where you live. You don't get to pick anything. It's just like, and this is your new last name and these are going to be your parents and you're going to live here. And so there's a whole lot of like uh, no choice uh, at all. And I think that uh, they kind of rushed through it because here are these young country, good people, um, who are 31 and they're willing to adopt four kids at once. Cause by that time I had three younger siblings. They're not going to ask questions. They're not going to anything they're going to, that's, that's a done deal. So whenever we were on our way to, um, to the house, uh, I had brought, I had brought some cassette tapes that some friends from school, I was in second grade. At, no, no, no. I was in fourth grade at the time. Some friends at school had given me as a going away present because like in my life, the only constant, the only thing I always had that always stayed the same was music. You could turn on the radio and it's the same, it's the same songs. And so, um, music was and is a huge Um, thing for me. And, uh, so I had a a Madonna tape. It's Madonna, true blue and Bon Jovi slippery when wet. (laughs) I had, I had these cassette tapes and, uh, and I wanted to sort of tap into my safe place as I'm riding in this car with these new people who are now my mom and dad. And I, um, just kind of like wanted to test the waters a little bit to, cause I didn't want to like push, push anything on them, but I don't know what kind of music they listen to. They might not like it, that sort of thing. And so I, I asked them what kind of music they listen to and uh, my adopted mom, um, she's got a little bit of a country uh, accent and she was like, we listen to gospel. (laughs) And I'm like, what in the heck is a gospel? And so, um, I, I'm, I'm like, do you ever listen to like rock or anything like that? They're like, nope. Uh, we don't allow rock. That's against our religion. And that's the, the, the against our religion. I heard that so many times. Tank tops. Nope, those are against our religion. My mom pierced my ears when I was three. Nope, those are against our religion. I love having painted nails, like girly stuff. Nope, that's against our religion. I had a pair of shorts. I had a shorts outfit that I had with a friend. We They were matching outfits. I'm moving away from her. I wanna, I wanna wear my outfit, connect with her a little bit, and they're like, "Nope, that's against our religion." So I'm like, just getting shoved further and further into this like cellar of religion, and it wasn't like a positive thing. It wasn't an empowering thing, a freedom thing. Uh, let's fill your light with love, your life with like love, and it was no, you. Every expression of myself, everything that made me feel like a human being made me feel normal. And as small as music and earrings and fingernail polish and, and as small as that is, it was hu- It was everything to me. And it was all deemed wrong. And uh, so I'm not someone to like, I'll speak up for myself, uh, but I kind of let people be who they are. So I just needed to try to find a safe place to be so that I wasn't, you know, in the way. And I mean that like metaphysically and physically, like metaphysically, meaning I'm not going to cause them a problem, but I don't know where a safe place is. Like, who am I? You know, and and I'm, I wasn't used to someone not like seeing my value. I never felt like they saw me as an individual, get to know me as an individual. I felt like they were trying to like. Make me fit into, and this is the spot we have for a ten-year-old, and this is the spot we have for, you know, so it, it was a really. This is a really big word. I'm going to go ahead and use it. It was really dehumanizing, and there were a lot of a lot of things that were like that. I felt like a good kid. I felt like I felt like I was smart and and that I had value and i remember social workers always telling me that um i always made families want to adopt um and it made me feel special like whenever i would whenever i would go to a new house i knew that they would end up liking me and so um when i went to their house and they didn't even take the time to get to know me it was weird and these are like my this is it this is it <laughs> And I was going through a huge grieving process, knowing that my mom was still out there, but I would never see her again. And that was never acknowledged. They changed everybody's names except for my first name because they liked it. And I'm grateful for that.
1: You have this poignant line in your book where you say, people behave according to what they believe about themselves. Talk to us about how this family impacted Your view of yourself and your view of God.
0: They were at church every time the doors were opened. And I was, if I didn't go up to like whenever there is an altar call, it was, it's a Pentecostal church um, where altar calls and like, bigger shows of expression um were normal um the speaking in tongues and um and raising hands and it was just there was an outward more of an outward show of i guess christianity or whatever than um than some other churches so if i didn't participate in that they would question me And I didn't connect with that. I I don't have, and even to this day, I don't have a bad opinion of it. I just don't connect with that bigger show. But that's how I am just in general. Uh, So my view of God, I could never get to Him personally. Uh, There wasn't ever a personal connection to Him. It was more like, you know, God is frowning on that behavior or... uh, that's not, you know, it's more like God is disappointed um, unless you behave a certain way or do a certain thing. So with them, uh, I just didn't feel like a good person. I wasn't approved of. I, um, they kind of made me feel like just guilty all the time, like I was always going to be in trouble. And so um, it, I'm like, then what's the use so when when i say that people behave according to what they believe about themselves if there's no standard for me to live up to then i'm just going to get i'm just going to get as much like just space to myself as i can Like I'm going to go the opposite direction just so that I can like have some breathing room because they were I just felt like this critical eye on me all the time. So I ended up behaving way worse, I think, than I would have naturally just to try to create space and get them get them away from me a little bit. I had a friend at school who, he was exploring all kinds of, and this is me, you know, moving into high school. He's he was exploring like Wicca, and um, he had a copy of the Satanic Bible, and so I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna like, I'm gonna explore this a little bit, and that never that never um, made sense to me. The Satanic Bible is full of like weird sex stuff, and I there was some. I don't know. I tried to like, well, maybe, maybe I'll tap into like, just tap into like the opposite direction and see, and see what's there. I know you're not supposed to play with a Ouija board by yourself. I was playing with a Ouija board by myself. The thing never moved. I'm like every, like, so I never had an experience in the opposite direction and I never had an experience in, you know, the, on the side of God. So I just didn't really consider it anymore. It's, I I didn't consider God anymore and I didn't consider the other side. I wasn't, I guess I didn't have like a spiritual tug and I never thought about, uh, Jesus loves me like that experience that didn't come, that didn't come back to my recollection until I actually did become a Christian and I was in his presence and I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been here before.
1: Which leads to the question, how did you meet Jesus?
0: So I left home when I was 17. It was it was rough at, at first because, you know, just kind of imagine maybe being on a, a ship out in the middle of the ocean and everybody on the ship is just toxic. And, you know, you need to get off of that ship somehow and and just go out on your own and figure out your own thing. You'd be better off in the unknown than in the present known. So I jumped ship. I left, I left, uh, the adopted, my adopted family's house when I was 17. No, no letter, no, no warning, nothing. I just left. And, um, they didn't know until I didn't make curfew. And I lived with a friend from work. She was in her twenties and, uh, she said I could stay with her. And I, Just kind of progressed through life a little bit. Her her boyfriend was really abusive, and so I would witness him uh, choking her and dragging her through the apartment by her hair. And um, there was it it was a little split. It was number one: um, how did how what am I doing here? Like how did I get here? And number two: I know this. Like I've seen this. I know this and it wasn't anything like my adopted family. So that was, (laughs) uh, so I, I think I was starting to make bad choices, go off the deep end a little bit. I had a boyfriend at the time who was still living at home. He was a senior in high school. Um, I, I enrolled myself into high school, into the only high school that would take a 17 year old without a parent. And, um, and I was, smart m smart uh and was in one of the advanced like english classes and i knew that that was going to be like my favorite my favorite class he was going to be my favorite teacher because i love english um and he had the whole class introduce themselves uh through an interview process and when he found out that i was living on my own he said you won't last long and he skipped over the rest of my interview and then the next day at school Um, when I would try to participate in conversation, he would just shoot me down and skip over me. And I think, uh, and then, so school started on a Wednesday. So the Friday at school, uh, the first day of school, I mean, was started on a Wednesday. So Friday, um, same thing. I, I, and I knew I just had to break through this guy. I just had to break through and be, and be persistent because I know that I can do this and he's going to, He's gonna change his mind, and then over the weekend, my boyfriend uh, broke up with me, and I ended up getting really drunk, just on purpose, as drunk as I possibly could, because it just hurt so bad. That evening, my my friend's abusive boyfriend ended up raping me, and when I came to enough, um, like the next day, to realize to realize what had happened, and and I, I was, it occurred to me, I don't have anyone to tell like this awful thing happened to me and there's not a soul on the face of this earth that would care beyond, you know, just normal, like caring for other humans, but there's nobody. And that was when I decided that I'm done. I'm done. I don't, I don't have anything. I dropped out of school. I couldn't face that teacher. I just couldn't. I went to school on Monday and uh, his class was after lunch. And after lunch, I just couldn't, I didn't have the strength <laughs> so, to fight, you know, and make him believe in me. So I um, I signed myself out and I never went back. And uh, I decided that I, uh, I was done with life. I mean, I'll just take whatever drug comes in front of me. I'm not, I've never been a suicidal person, but having like no will to live and nothing to live for and no hope, that's where I was. So I'll just live like, I'll just disappear, you know, into whatever, whatever world. So like miraculously, no real hard drug ever came in front of me. And that's, to me, that's pretty impressive but I ended up becoming pregnant when I was 18. And, um, I was devastated because I had already begun the dismantling process. I had already like, didn't finish high school, like don't have a family, don't have friends, don't have anywhere to live. I was, I, I, I I'm fine with that, but like a a child, that's not, that's not fair and that's not cool. And so I, I was, I mean, devastated is a weird word, but just like, Oh my gosh, like I don't want to be like my mom was. I don't want to do that to somebody. And so, um, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And, uh, I worked at a, at a grocery store as a cashier. And I remember, Uh, This lady coming through my line, and this is probably another one of those angel moments, I don't know, because of the way it completely pivoted my life. But um, she asked me the most basic question. She asked me how far along I was. But here's the thing. I wasn't showing. I was like, I'm 18. This is my first child, and I'm four months along. Like, I don't know how she knew, but she knew. And she said, how far along are you? And I said, four months. And she, she just looked me directly in the eyes and she said, you are so lucky because babies are a gift from God. And then she took her stuff and left. And I'm like, that is she, I mean, she's obviously, I mean, that's just what, (laughs) what? And so I'm just standing there like, okay, she didn't judge me because I look a lot younger than I am, especially when I was a teenager, she didn't judge me. And she didn't. And she said, babies are a gift from God. And I, I just let that roll around in my head. I had so many questions. Like, if that's true, you know, then like I did this though, like my stupidity, my being careless. I did this. I ruined my life. I ruined this baby's life. Like that's not I mean, but if it was a God, if it was God, if babies are a gift from God, if there are lots of unintended, you know, pregnancies that lead to like these lives and these people are driving cars and working jobs and writing books and, you know, acting and singing and being good people and, you know, all these people, if, if however they were brought into this world, they're not like worthless. They're not. So I'm thinking... If that's true, then God must see something in me that nobody else does. If that's true, then He must, he must believe in me. And that, that right there was, uh, first of all, to be seen, because up to that point, I had just felt completely invisible. To, to have somebody believe in me, it had been so long since anybody looked at me like I had value. And then it's, and so here, so my, my salvation prayer, my very first sort of like me and God moment was in a grocery store around 11 o'clock at night. And I'm just standing there and I just said, and, and I do have to say some of the other things that were rolling through my head were little snippets of like these trite little Christian sayings that people would say like stuff I would probably roll my eyes out now, like roll my eyes out now, but like, you know, just, just trust God and he'll fix it and give, give your burdens to God and he'll whatever. And I'm like, that sounds so trite. It just sounds so like, like a non-statement it's something somebody says to like make themselves feel better, but there's no action to it. There's no, So I, I, it's frustrating, but in that moment, those things were rolling through my head, give it to God, trust God. And I'm like, okay, okay. If you are who they say you are, then I need you to say, I need you to do what they say you do. Like I need, I need whatever, whatever that is. And so I started going to church after that. And, uh, and I was just like, clean slate, like, here I am. I mean, I don't know what you're going to do with me because I am a mess. But I'm, I, here I am, like head first, <laughs> head first into the sea of, of church. And I didn't ask questions uh, as far as like, well, why can't I do this? Well, why can't it? No, you tell me I can't do something. I'm not going to do it. You tell me to do something, I'm going to do it. Like, that's kind of how I am. I'm all or nothing. That was my salvation. The arrival of my—she's now 22—my 22-year-old little butterfly in my belly, that is what led me to God.
1: I love that story, and I love that woman who told you that babies were a gift from God, and surely perhaps that was an angel. Well, we have two more parts to this podcast, so my last question for today is about your life verse, which will lead into part two of your story. You became a Christian, you're following the Lord, you end up getting married, you have more children, and throughout the years, there's this verse that keeps popping up in your life. Tell us about that verse.
0: Okay. Just going through the normal, the normal journey that a Christian goes through when they are having their devotions, and, um, and so I would keep like a, what... I used to call, I guess, a prayer journal, and I would just write down uh, what was going on in my life. What, and then I would have my devotion, and um, and then I would write down what I got out of the devotion. And there was one day where I was reading, and um, this verse stood out to me, and um, it didn't make sense any sense at the time because it didn't apply to anything. But when I was reading it, like in the Bible, it says, "Simon, Simon." But when I'm reading it, it says, Serena, it's going to make me cry. It says, Serena, Serena, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. But I've prayed for you, Serena, that your faith won't fail. And when you come back, strengthen your brothers. And so I believe it was October 30th of 1996. I still have the journal. October 30th, 30th of 1996, I just wrote it down. I didn't say anything about it. I just wrote it down. And then throughout the next nine years of my relationship with God and reading, and every time I came across that verse, I would think, there's my verse. Never knew, never knew what it meant. And then in the end of 2004, beginning of 2005, I came across it again. I actually was in the process of emailing a friend of mine, and uh, and I said, I came across that verse again because she was, she's familiar with it. And she got back with me. She said, Serena, I'm, I'm worried about that verse because Jesus said that to Peter right before he denied him, like right before he failed. And I, uh, I'm like, well, that's ludicrous (laughs) because I, uh, I don't do anything. Like I, there's nothing, there's no, I'm like I was a mom with three kids, yeah, three kids, and uh, my my biggest motivation was having a clean house and getting my kids out of it in the afternoon to g- keep it to keep it clean. Like there's nothing, there was nothing going on. Uh, and she's she said uh, she had a dream or a vision or something like that. I can't remember what it was. And God showed her a huge yellow flashing light, and she emailed me. She's like, "Serena, I feel like God is telling you to stop. Just, just stop." And I don't know why, but something is coming up. And I'm like, "I don't know what you're talking about. Like, that is not what God is is sending to me. That's not what He's telling me. He's telling me to don't be afraid, to not be afraid that He's with me." Um, I was getting ready to like embark on this acting career. Um, And things were looking really good. I was getting a lot of good responses from the right people in Los Angeles, like really exciting, but unknown territory and territory where like, I don't know how well a Christian can stand up um, in that kind of setting. So, but God was telling me, don't worry. Like it's you are, everything is going to be fine. This is me. I'm leading you like all of that. So when she says, stop, I, that's where I'm like, I, that doesn't make sense to me. And then she and then she comes back and she's like, I'm so sorry. It's a yellow light. And the yellow light is a caution. <laughs> You're approaching an intersection where I lose people. So just be careful. And so I had no idea what that meant, but it brings me to tears now because I did go through that and, and he could have lost me, but he didn't.
1: Thank you so much, Serena. We are going to stop for today, and we will pick this up next Tuesday for part two of my interview with Serena Woods, author of Grace is for Sinners. And now here's a short clip from next week's interview.
0: I, I moved back, and uh, it wasn't 48 hours, and everything I never thought that I would ever do. I never thought that I would have a, an actual physical affair.
1: Thank you for listening to the complicated heart podcast. Loved this episode, head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Reviews are how people know if they should listen or not. So please, if you like the show, take a minute and give it a review. Thank you so much. If you want to know more, check out sarahmay.com forward slash the complicated heart podcast. See you next time.